Brother Steve is gone to a, a counseling conference, and one of the things he asked me to do tonight is lead us in a time of prayer. But he also pretty much gave me free reign as what we're doing tonight. And I thought I'd like to continue on with some of the theme, one of the themes out of Isaiah 53. I want us to go there to start with, and then I'm going to be cherry-picking through the Scriptures and just reading some Scriptures for us to meditate on that we could think about how Christ was foretold in the Old Testament and completed what the Father's plan was at the cross of Calvary. So if we could all turn to Isaiah 53. Now last Sunday night, the pastor just went through uh, a time of discussion and what it was your favorite section and why. Well, in our Sunday school lesson for the men today, we talked a little bit about uh, you know, the family of God and talk about themes. And one of the themes I talked about, I, I spoke of, that sort of sparked me for tonight, is dealing with a the theme of the crimson thread. And we see this mentioned here in Isaiah 53. But we also, I'm using that theme to go back and look at selected scripture that I wanted to bring out tonight as we have a little time of uh, Bible devotion before we have prayer time. Okay? Now, in Isaiah 53, we see uh, it's a very beautiful uh, passage, and it's one that people call Isaiah the fifth gospel. If you look at, there's at least five different sections, and this being one of the larger sections, that in the book of Isaiah talks about the Messiah. And so a lot of theologians mention Isaiah as if it were the fifth gospel. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have Isaiah and the Old Testament. But what I want to do, I want to start reading in 53, but I'm only going to go down uh, about midway. And then... I want to take that theme that I stop at, and then I want to start weaving that tapestry in the scriptures. So starting out in Isaiah 53, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face, faces, he was despised and was not, and we esteemed him not. Now the next few verses is where it gets into this idea of the red thread. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him 
stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So I want to stop here in the book of Isaiah chapter 53. In these last few verses, we see a metaphor of Jesus Christ being like a sheep who is led uh, to slaughter. Well, this theme is pervasive in the Old Testament, but it's also in the New Testament. And I just want to take a few minutes and cherry-pick some of those verses. And I want to use Jesus Christ as our lens as we focus on those scriptures with this knowledge. Okay, Because you see, over the history of the Bible, the Lord told his prophets, a little here, a little here, a little here, building upon these themes. We have the privilege of hindsight of looking back. Okay? With those, with those limbs of Christ on our face as we'll go back looking at scripture. A good reference point uh, of where proof text, so, so to speak, is remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, uh, on that Sunday morning, uh, that we had the two people walking back to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And he started sharing with them out of the scriptures. And they were amazed. So even Jesus, as he was walking from those two back to Emmaus, he was sharing the Old Testament here and saying it was written that I had to go through these things to fulfill the law and the will of my Father. Okay? So with that, hopefully everyone has got their Jesus lenses on now, on their face. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back to Genesis chapter 22. This is a very important chapter uh, with Abraham. This is where we see how much Abraham believed God. You see, you have to take things in context back then. The people that lived in that area that Abraham was walking when he was wandering and walking, they had a paganistic society that had all kinds 
of uh, worshiping of idols. And they had a point of where they would actually offer children to someone like Moloch as a burnt offering. They would sacrifice their children. Okay? So that, I just want to give you a little context here of what's going on in this territory at this time. And so, Abraham has been faithful. He listened to God and he believed and God accounted to him as righteousness as Paul talks about in the book of Romans. But now, here's where the tire hits the pavement. God comes up to Abraham and pretty much says, you know, hey, this is what the people believe here. You know, they, they sacrifice their children. You know, would you sacrifice your son to me? And notice what here, it says in chapter 22 of Genesis, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him. Now, the word testing is contextual. That word can be used in one of two ways. And you have to look at the context in which the word is used to get its meaning. When it's used in the sentence mentioning God, it is something that he's testing you to prove you true. But the same thing, same word could be used in context with Satan. And when Satan is testing you, he's trying to prove you false. Context matters. Don't take scripture out of context. That's what Satan does. He's the father of lies. But so now we see here that Abraham is now being tested to be proven true by God. And he said, Abraham said, here I am. Am I? He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Morah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So what did Abraham do? Did he run like Jonah and go the opposite way? It says here, so Jonah, Jonah, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, that tells me something about Abraham. Notice what he said. He said that he and the boy were going over there, but then they would be coming back. Okay? But then it says in verse 6, and Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on his Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, he said, Here am I, here I am I, 
my son? He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8 is what I wanted to really point out here. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, as the story progresses, we see that they find and, and make it a, 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 a place for a burnt offering. They lay the wood, and then Isaac, his only true son, miracle baby, is wrapped up and laid down on that prior, so to speak. And he looks up into heaven, and he's got the knife in his hand ready to plunge it into the chest of his only son. And it says in verse 10, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you do not withhold your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So here is a, a famous place in the scripture where we see this allusion to that crimson thread and that God will provide. All right, but where else do we see this in the Old Testament? Let's now go to Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to talk about the scapegoat. Now, when we get to Leviticus, this is where Moses starts writing about, you know, he's the one that wrote the five books of the Old Testament. But he's talking about how the Lord instructed him to build the tabernacle and all the accoutrements that go along with it and the the dress code and all that and all these uh, regulations that the Jews were supposed to follow to maintain health and all that. But we get down to chapter 16 Leviticus, and we're going to look down at verse 21. Actually, I want to go back. Um, in verse 20, it says, And when he had made an end to atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, in the previous scriptures in uh, chapter 16, it talks how they're supposed to sacrifice the lamb and the bull offering and sprinkle blood on things and to get things holy and ready to be used. But now we get down here uh, to verse uh, uh, 20, and it talks about getting the holy place ready at the tent of meeting and the altar, and he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat 
and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is uh, in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and shall let the goat go free into in the wilderness. Okay, so here's where we're having the uh, the transference, if you please, of the sins of the people onto this goat, and letting it go out to wander with the inferred idea that it's not going to live very long without being cared for. But it's going to go out into the wilderness to die. Okay? Can you see this crimson thread that I'm talking about here? Now, I want to go now to the New Testament and see what it says there. So, let's go to Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And I want to read the first, uh, see, 13 or so verses here. In Hebrews chapter 10, the pericope, that's the title heading above a particular chapter. That's what the, that's not part of what was, uh, denoted down by God. That's what scholars have summarized these verses here. And that it's called pericope. That's the heading. And the heading or pericope in chapter 10 of my study Bible says, Christ sacrificed once for all. Okay? In chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, uh, once been cleansed, would no longer have any con- uh, consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a remainder of sin every year, a reminder of sin every year, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what's happening here, and you have to look, the cross separates, you know, our time from before Christ, after Christ, and the way historians mark time. The cross is central. And the sins of the people that lived before the time of the cross in the crucifixion of Christ, their sins, by they're going through the ritualistic act of obedience, of following God's command, they were taking their sins and pushing them forward to the cross. But we see we're standing on the upside of the cross. And we're asking Christ to forgive us of our sins, and we're pushing our sins back to the cross. Does that make sense? So by them being obedient and following the law and commandments God gave Moses to tell the people, by them doing that, they were obeying God's commands and therefore pushing their sin forward to the cross. But notice he says, well, if they did it once, why not one time? Why don't they stop? Because it, shedding the blood of goats and lambs wasn't going to be enough. 
And that's one of the things the law was written for, to point out to the people that they never could be good enough. They had to look for something else, that something else was called the Messiah. And so we see here, it says, but in verse 3 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, but in these sacrifices there is a remainder of sin every year, for it is impossible for blood and goats, uh, bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scrolls of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to you, come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So see, he is the perfect atoning sacrifice for us. What was done back then, what the Lord told Moses to implement, was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Does that make sense? And so we see here uh, Christ representing the Lamb of God. As uh, John uh, the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Alright, one last place I want to go is in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to start in cha- uh, chapter 1 verse 13 and go through verse 20. Actually through 21 to complete it. The pericope in my study Bible is called, Call to be Holy. In verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So we see here, again, this illusion of Christ being the lamb sacrifice who shed his blood so that crimson thread is pervasive throughout the Old and New Testament. And that is something that is one of our key doctrines in our faith. And so as you think about reading Isaiah, and specifically Isaiah 53, just remember that some of the themes that are in Isaiah 53 are sprinkled throughout the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. And all things are pointing back to God through Jesus Christ. Okay? So that was a little study, a little Bible study I wanted to put together tonight just to uh, continue on this theme from Isaiah 53. It is very rich, and I've only scratched the surface. As you go through and read Isaiah 53 and the other uh, Christological passages that are in the book of Isaiah, uh, and then you start chasing down the, uh, the foretelling of things. Uh, for instance, I didn't go all the way back to Genesis. Remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He slaughtered an animal and made them skins, loinskins, uh, so that they would cover their nakedness. But there was a shedding of blood for what they did, which was a lot of theologians call that the proto-gospel. Okay, the loot that it's starting back then at the time of origination of sin in between God and mankind, that sacrifice had to be made in the shedding of blood. So it was all the way back then, and that thread has gone through. And uh, in the Sunday school class, I mentioned, I think it was Rahab. Remember, she was the harlot, it said in the scriptures, and she was in the town of Jericho, and the, and the, the Israeli spies to them came in, and she gave them a place to hide, and they got information, and she asked them to uh, remember her. If you go back, and I think it's in book of Matthew chapter 1, where we have the genealogy. Look who's in the genealogy of Christ's lineage. It's Rahab. It's because she believed the Israelites. And she asked for mercy. And she wanted salvation, or basically to live and not to be destroyed uh, and uh by, you know, when they were going to tear down Jericho, take it down. And so they promised that she would come along with them and walk with them. And not only did she physically walk with them, but she believed. And now she is prominent in the uh, scripture in the genealogy of Jesus Christ because of her faith. So again, this shows you that crimson thread and it terminates there at the cross. But then the blood is spilled upon us and covers us and atones for our sins and our transgressions that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ on us.
Because it says you must be holy because your God is holy. And the only way we can do that is through Christ and his shed blood and that atoning blood that is sprinkled on us, so to speak, as they talk about in the Old Testament. 